good evening. I thought it was you guys were like a movie on a big screen in front of me, or zombies or something. The first wisdom has to do with properly return a greeting of a pastor from a pulpit. Proverbs chapter 24 tonight. We pick things up in verse 11. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, just wave to these gentlemen that are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now. They've got a Bible into your hands and, and uh, you can follow along as well as uh, listening. Proverbs chapter 24, verse 11. Deliver those who are drawn toward death and hold back those stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, surely we did not know this, we didn't know anything about this being drawn to death or those being stumbling to the slaughter, but he who weighs the hearts, but does not he who weighs the hearts consider it? He who keeps your soul, does he not know it? And he will not, and will he not render to each man according to his deeds? And so here's an encouragement to stand against injustice and violence uh, toward the innocent. And so this call for us to make a stand for justice, to defend the innocent. We think about in terms of uh, recent uh, human history being in the last, you know, hundred years ago, impossible not to think of the Jews who were um, the attempt to exterminate them by the Nazis, six million Jews uh, died as a part of that related to World War II. And uh, there was a famous German pastor, Pastor Martin Niemöller. He was imprisoned, actually, in a prison camp uh, for several years during World War II for standing against Hitler and against Nazism. But he wrote this very famous kind of saying that goes along with these two verses that make up this proverb. He said concerning that period uh, of Nazism, he said, first they came for the communists, and I didn't speak out because I wasn't a communist. Then they came for the socialists, and I didn't speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I didn't speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I didn't speak out because I was not a Jew. And then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak out for me. And uh, there's a lot of truth in that. Think about abortion today, and I know so many Christians are tired of hearing about abortions or making a stand related um, to homosexuality or the different things that are a part of the fight that um, we're in the middle of in terms of standing for the Lord. That needs to be done in a way that is respectful, but we're to have a backbone and to make a stand. We must never, ever uh, allow uh, the voice of the unborn who are being uh, slaughtered by the thousands and the millions in the course of every single year for them to lose their voice. If they don't have a voice through Christians, then who is going to be their voice and to make a stand against the culture, make a stand against even the laws of our land. Um, I commend, uh, sometimes people don't always handle things properly at every, you know, Planned Parenthood building or abortion clinic or whatever it might be. So, but I commend those that 
stand out there and call on people to consider uh, what in the world we're doing and what monsters we've become and, and to keep that in front of people and to be that voice. And we need to make that kind of, of a stand as Christians and not just in those kind of places but anywhere. It's really important for us as Christians. The culture's bold. How bold is the culture we're in? It's just bold as can be. And the world's worst thing that can happen at this moment in time is for us to lose our boldness the moment. Again, not to be ugly or to be carnal or to be fleshly, but to be afraid to say in a conversation that this is right and that is wrong. And no, you're not going to convince me otherwise related to that. And let me tell you why what God says is wise related to this situation. And look at human history and to make a stand. And we need to make that kind of a stand because people will become casualties if we don't. We have the Holy Spirit within us. He is a Holy Spirit. We have a Holy Bible. We're able to make a stand that people that don't know the Lord don't have the same power to be able to do that. And it's important that we do that. You look in the culture that we live in, and so abortion's been... Uh, legal since 1973. I lose track. Every year they total up the numbers now of how many abortions have been done. It's a forgivable sin, by the way, but it's a serious issue and a serious sin in our culture. And so we look and we say, well, you know, they're unborn. They don't have a voice, convenience, women's rights, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. And the idea is that it'll stop there. It's okay to disrespect life in the womb, but somehow men and women will be able to compartmentalize well enough that they'll never move from that. And then the next thing that happens to the culture is there's no respect for life concerning the elderly. And then once they get that, and that's the next, we're the next ones on the menu, ladies and gentlemen. And now it's a matter of money and government money and all of this, and none of this would have ever gotten to where it is if the culture hadn't begun to lose ground related to the value of life. And then once it becomes a matter of dollars and cents for who lives and who doesn't live, and then it's going to become dollars and cents for who costs too much money in terms of Down syndrome children or whatever else kind of a medical need that people have. There's a need to make a stand against what is unrighteous and against the victimizing of those that don't have a voice. Or otherwise, it may not happen overnight. It may take a number of years, but they will be at everybody's doorstep. Sin is sin. Wickedness is wickedness. Injustice is injustice. And there needs to be a people, and it's always been God's people, who have stood up against it and say, it doesn't move any forward, not on my watch. And we may not be the President of the United States or a Senator or a Congressman, but we have our sphere of influence. We have our own convictions. We have our own place where we can make our stand and be that kind of an influence. And it's important that we do that. And this is a very, very important um, proverb for today. I like to read uh, history. I like to read military history. I don't know why, but it's interesting to me. And I recently finished a book 
that was written uh, by a Jewish man who uh, wrote a journal from the Warsaw Ghetto during uh, World War II. And the Jews were, like so many places, ushered off into these uh, ghettos, including Warsaw Ghetto. And then there was the Warsaw Uprising, where the Jews rebelled against uh, the Nazis when they came in to uh, uh, liquidate uh, the ghetto. And one of the things that he wrote on the final pages, he didn't live long enough for the uprising, much less to see the end of the war, but a very gripping insight into the daily life of the Jewish person in the midst of those ghettos. And he spoke about the fact that toward the end there, there were these uh, men and women who decided related to this treatment that they were receiving, being uh, starved to death and all of this, that they were going to stand up against the Nazis, even if it meant their lives. And their only regret was that the Jews in Poland, we're talking about Poland with Warsaw, that the Jews did not rise up against injustice in mass when they numbered three million instead of when they numbered in the thousands. And they squandered away an opportunity. And we squander away an opportunity as well. The longer we wait to make the stands that we're supposed to make for God's righteousness, then we operate from a more uh, weak position. And, and so the importance of making that particular uh, stand in our culture, whatever it might be that, that uh, we are facing today or will face. I think Dante had one of the great quotes related to this, and he declared that the hottest places in hell are reserved for those who in a time of great moral crisis maintain their neutrality. And so here was, that was his rebuke of this uh, inexcusable indifference in the face of wickedness that was then making a victim of uh, so many people. And so I think what a powerful application it is for us as Christians uh, related, of course, to the gospel and those that haven't heard the gospel yet, being drawn to death, being drawn to judgment, the need that they have to hear the gospel. Paul spoke to the Ephesian elders as is recorded in the book of Acts, and he declared to them, I testify to you that this day I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you all of the counsel of God. And he considered that a great thing that he had done was to stand, stand for the things of the Lord in his generation, deliver that to other people, and then be freed from their blood. Verse 13, my son, enjoy honey because it's good, and the honeycomb which is sweet to your taste. And so shall the knowledge of wisdom be to your soul. If you have found it, there is a prospect and your hope will not be cut off. And so here is an exhortation to study wisdom. You've already obeyed the exhortation by virtue of being here tonight in a study of the book of, of Proverbs. And Solomon is declaring essentially that what honey does to us physically, honey in those days was like um, uh, whatever candy bar you like best, you know. So... Uh, I'm trying to think of what's the nut with the caramels, the payday. So it was kind of like that related to things. Now, some of you I've lost now for the remaining 40 minutes. You're all going to think about is a payday and getting to the lotus 
nearest AM, PM and getting one of those and then one of those jerky sticks and whatever else kind of thing, some kind of a rock star slug it down Red Bull drink or whatever, and then you wonder why you feel lousy on Monday morning to start church. Listen, I'm sorry about that. I've moved into the realm of your liberties, but something to think about. So what honey does for us physically, it does strengthen us, it does energize us instantaneously, really. He's saying that wisdom or God's Word does to our soul. It gives us our soul energy, and it gives it hope concerning uh, the future. And so this whole uh, possessing wisdom, obeying God's wisdom, is a key to maintaining hope concerning the future. When we are not right with God, when we are living in deliberate rebellion to God, or we're in a backslidden state, or we're choosing uh, to sin in an area that He's convicting us on, and and we're uh, abiding in that sin. And when we look at the future, we have no confidence concerning the future. Our hope evaporates because of that. And one of the great blessings of obeying God's Word and walking in obedience to His Word is the confidence that we have when difficulty comes, trials come, we look at the future, the uncertainty, humanly speaking, of the future. It's not uncertain to God at all. All of His promises are going to be yea and amen toward us. But there is something about knowing God's wisdom, obeying His wisdom that makes us confident about the future with a confidence that we wouldn't otherwise possess. Do not lie in wait, O wicked man, against the dwelling of the righteous. Do not plunder his resting place. For a righteous man may fall seven times. <laughs> I thought righteous people never had any problems and uh, never fell. But they do. The righteous man may fall seven times and rise again, but the wicked shall fall. And the, and the idea is utterly fall by Calamity, And this is a, another important uh, proverb for us today. There's nothing new under the sun, is there? The world, the technology changes and all the everything changes, but men are the same, sin is the same, the issues are the same at their core. And this speaks of the fact that the wicked have no hope of destroying the righteous. No matter how many victories they have, no matter how many victories they appear to be gaining. And it looks like the, the wicked, the unrighteous, the ungodly, I mean, their victories are occurring uh, by the day. It's like an avalanche what's going on right now. God's not even concerned about it because there's no future in wickedness. It'll ultimately collapse on itself. And every victory against the righteous is a short-term victory. Even if they are victorious over the righteous, over the godly, seven times, uh, ultimately uh, the, the righteous are going to rise up above that for the simple reason that God is on the side of the righteous. So it's important not to lose heart. If we live in a season in human history where the wicked seem victorious, their season of victory is very, very short-lived, and so we are to stay bold, we are to stay confident, we are to stay filled with faith. It's the wicked who are going to one day fall and not get up. They're going to be destroyed one day by calamity. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and do not let your heart 
Be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and it displease him, and it does displease the Lord, and the Lord turn away his wrath from your enemies. So the fall of our enemies, when God judges our enemies, here he is talking in verses 15 and 16, that he will judge the wicked. And when he judges the wicked, that's not a time for us uh, to do like some groups do, go out on the street and hand out candy and, and holler and hoot and all of that kind of thing. The Lord does not rejoice. That's his heart. His heart is not one of rejoicing even in the judgment of the wicked. The Lord spoke in Ezekiel through the prophet and had, and had Ezekiel speak to the people and, and said, As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? So it isn't in the heart of God judges the wicked. God will humble them. God will break them. One day he will, if they do not repent and trust in Jesus, they will be cast into an eternal lake of fire of judgment and separation forever from God. But he never rejoices in that. Never rejoices. So when God judges our enemies on our behalf, he's done it. We didn't do it. And he didn't do it for us to rejoice because now we're not bearing his character. But to just look at it with humility, say, God, thank you for that. Thank you for humbling the wicked in that particular situation. But I want to be like you in this. I don't want to gloat over it. I want to represent your nature, even in your judgment of the wicked. Do not fret because of evildoers. That might be the one verse that you've come out to hear tonight. Do not fret because of evildoers. Anyone fretting because of evildoers on a daily basis? Oh, no? Okay. They all go to other churches. Don't fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the wicked. For there will be no prospect for the evil man. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. And so the wicked have nothing but judgment. They have nothing but uh, hell and death that is going to await them. There's no good future for the evil or the wicked. And so the call uh, for us... Uh, never ever to envy a sinner. I hope none of us envies the life of the wicked. Uh, man, this life that we get to live is the greatest life. I wouldn't want to live the life of the wicked, not for five minutes, not for all of the money in the world. Verse 21, My son, fear the Lord and the king, that is a king that represents the Lord, a godly king, And do not associate with those who are given to change, revolutionaries, anarchists, that kind of thing, for their calamity will rise suddenly. In other words, their revolution uh, will be crushed. And who knows the ruin that those two can bring. So here we have the importance of respect for the institution of government. That is an institution of God. We're not to join Uh, revolutions, and we're not to uh, become anarchists in the society that we live in against godly leadership. If a government, this government, uh, pushes us to a place where it demands that we uh, obey, uh, obey a law that is in violation of God's law, 
then we choose to disobey man and disobey government in order to obey God's Word. And then the revolution is on, but it's a revolution of the Spirit and in our hearts. It's a, it's a quiet, powerful revolution that, that occurs. And so we're not to be drawn into the overthrow of governments and, uh, and, and especially godly governments or righteous governments just because people want to change. Uh, politics is a funny thing. You probably realize that it's a complicated thing. Uh, there's a lot of um, uh, uh, special interests involved, a lot of self-interests involved, and Christians can get pulled in, even in our society where there's uh, political parties and all be drawn into something that isn't as pure and as clean as we like to think that it is. We carry the Lord's name into that a little bit, and so uh, we have to be careful with, with all of that. We are to be the best citizens in any nation that we uh, live in, obeying the laws of that land, except, again, where they laws would call on us to disobey the Lord. And so we're to stay away from revolutions, overthrowing governments, and uh, put our focus on the Great Commission and spending time on that and praying for our government uh, leaders. Verse 23, these things also belong to the wise. It is not good to show partiality in judgment. He who says to the wicked, and it's talking about judges, uh, you are righteous, him the people will curse. So the condemnation of judges that are uh, ungodly who then say to those that are wicked, you win the court case, you are righteous, we rule in your, uh, on your behalf in this case, him the people will curse, nations will abhor that kind of judge. But those who rebuke the wicked will have delight. And so the righteous judge that no matter how much money, how much power, how much anything, they do what's right in terms of uh, the edict that they bring forth and judging a case, then they're going to have delight. They're going to be praised and, and, and uh, treasured by the population of that country. And a good blessing will come upon them. And so the importance of what judges are put into these places of significance in our country and really in any country. And so the condemning of uh, judges who corrupt the judicial system by uh, being lenient toward the wicked and then the commending of righteous judges that do the right thing no matter uh, how hard it might be and the righteous judge and, and the judgment that he or she uh, puts out related to a case when they do the right thing. Verse 26, he who gives a right answer kisses the lips. <laughs> something. It's nice to be kissed on the lips by the right person. <laughs> One time, my stepfather, his mother, was our kind of grandmother, came visited one time out from Philadelphia, and we had beds that were near the bathroom. It was kind of a walkway that would go toward the only bathroom in the room, and being older, she'd get up during the night and all, and she just couldn't resist kissing us on the lips when she would go in the middle of the night to the bathroom. So kind of a shock for a teenage boy. <laughs> what was that? Oh, it's grandma. But he's, 
He's thinking about someone you really want to kiss on the lips, what he's talking about here. So you think about, you put yourself in the picture of a courtroom where um, here you are, you're the righteous person, and here's the wicked person, and here's the judge, and the wicked person's got all the money, all the witnesses, all the power, all the pull, all the everything, and you sit over here and you realize, I have no hope in this case unless this judge does the right thing. I'm completely at the mercy of this judge. And then when the judge rules in your favor, it's like having the person you love most in life kiss you on the lips. I mean, it is just the greatest feeling. And so this is, all of you judges out there, uh, this, is the, this is the impact that righteous judgments have upon those that are affected by your judgments. Verse 27, prepare your outside work, make it fit for yourself uh, in the field, and then afterward, build your house, physically build a house, and then building a house also spoke of marrying and raising a family. This is just one proverb after another that applies so strongly to where we live today, and it's a wisdom that we just need to um, receive. So this proverb is just priceless, and it, and it is the commendation of proper priorities in life. And it's basically saying, you know, put first things first. Put things in their proper order in life. And he lays the order out here in the proverb. Uh, step number one, priority number one, get a job and get established in that uh, job. Establish the ability uh, to raise a family. I remember I wanted to marry Karen, my wife. And uh, at the time, I was working at a car wash. Well, I was living in a studio apartment, $70 a month. The bed came out of the wall because it was a living room uh, after you put the bed back up into the wall. So I couldn't really face her dad and ask for a hand in marriage on the basis of that. And so ultimately looking, pounding pavement like everybody does, you know, to try and find a job. And I found one with a phone company. And then we were able to uh, get married. So here is the whole idea of uh, get a job, get established in it, the ability to support a family, number one. Then second, then get married after you've done that. And then third, after you've gotten married, then have a family and uh, your career and a marriage, and then comes children. Now, you look at the nation that we live in today, and increasingly everything is turned completely upside down. The first thing people do is they get pregnant. Now they got a child. And then now they decide to get married. And then now that they're married, they decide that they need to get a job in order to support the family. It's completely upside down. And then the government comes in, and they're going to try and fix something that's upside down through legislation. So they're going to deal with uh, however you might feel about minimum wage laws or this or that, and trying to throw money at all kinds of problems, and that's about all that they're good at doing because they have no moral authority to do anything other than that. 
But when you've got a generation or two or three generations of people that have that backwards and they don't realize the first thing I need to do is I need to get a job that can support a family, then get married, and then have children, and they are instead having children and then getting married and then thinking about a job, you can be the richest country in the world and you won't have enough money to throw at that problem to fix that. And most of the problems in the nation that we live in right now, they are not financial problems. They are moral problems. They are spiritual problems. They are, the, they are a nation attempting an experiment in the face of, in violation of God's wisdom, and it will not work. It cannot work. And so this Verse 27 can absolutely save a person's life. And you think about how many people are already down this wrong road. And if you get saved and God's got the grace to work all of it together for good and he's a miracle worker, absolutely is. But um, to steer people away from the model that is before us today, it's a disaster. It is a very tough uh, row to hoe, very hard, and God doesn't want people in that kind of a place when it's easier to do it the other way. Verse 28, do not be a witness against your neighbor without cause, for would you deceive with your lips or lie? Do not say, I will do to him just as he has done to me. Uh, he's lied about me. I'm going to lie about him too. I will render to the man according to his work. And so the forbidding of spreading of lies or false allegations against a neighbor simply because they have done that to uh, us. And uh, even if they have done it to us, we uh, can uh, tell any truth that we need, you know, to separate the facts that they're lying. There's nothing wrong with coming and saying, hey, listen, this isn't what's going on here. Here are the true facts about the situation. Facts are stubborn things, as the saying goes, but we are not to then take the step and start to slander them as well. We don't want to come down uh, to their level. And in a kind of an emotional uh, situation like that, it's easy to come down to the other person's level. Verse 30, I went by the field of a lazy man. You just picture it, kind of a agriculture, agri- uh, agrarian society and these paths between the fields and here's a person's house and the fields all around. And this particular field uh, of, of grain, it, it belonged to a lazy man. And so I went by the field of a lazy man and I went by the vineyard of a man devoid of understanding. And there it was, the field, all overgrown with thorns. Its surface was covered with nettles. The stone wall was broken down. And when I saw it, I considered it well. You know, the fact of the matter is everything in life is preaching. Everything in life is teaching us something if we have the ability to learn the lesson that it's trying to teach us. Sometimes it's from a positive angle, sometimes from a negative angle. So Solomon says, when I saw it, I considered it well. There's a lesson for me here to learn. 
And I looked on it, and I received instruction, and here's what I learned. A little sleep and a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. You know, I'm just going to take a quick nap here during my break. (laughs) And so shall your poverty come like a prowler. It will surprise you, and your need like an armed man. And so the only warning that any of us needs against living a lazy life is to just carefully examine of the physical condition that laziness uh, lowers other people into. It's just a broken, run-down uh, living condition and way of life. And, and so this warning against being lazy. Again, the person who loves to sleep and loves laziness over hard work is condemned. And this is repeated over and over and over again. Um, when Jesus called his disciples, every one of them was working. Every one of them was working. He doesn't call lazy people. He doesn't call um, people who weren't industrious. It wasn't like, okay, I'll take six of these and six of these and we'll try and reform the other. Even he didn't want those to work with. And he chose, uh, chose them. And it's an important lesson related to ministry as well. Chapter 25, verse 1. These are, the, are, the, are Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, copied. And Hezekiah reigned about 250 years after Solomon reigned. And so his scribes were uh, going through the records and the writings of Solomon. And they took uh, these uh, uh, proverbs that we're going to be looking at, about little over a hundred proverbs that were written by Solomon. They copied them out of one book into another book, and, and, uh, and so here they are recorded for us in Scripture. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, aren't you glad? But the glory of kings is to search out a matter or to investigate it fully. And so the glory of God, the idea isn't that God hides things that he knows. He conceals a matter in that God simply can't explain everything to us that we would like to have uh, explained uh, to us. God not only knows more than any of us, Uh, will ever know, but he knows infinitely more than he can ever, ever reveal to us because he is infinite and we are finite. And anytime you have the finite us in a relationship with the infinite, then there has to be the recognition that God can only reveal any truth of his uh, this far before we can't understand it any further. And he gives us that revelation Uh, in his word. There's the old saying that a God that's small enough to understand isn't big enough to follow. And there's a lot of truth to that because if I could understand him, he'd be smaller than my mind. If he's smaller than my mind, he's smaller than me. Why am I going to worship a God that is smaller than me? So uh, God, he knows infinitely more than he will ever uh, than he can ever communicate to any of us. This is why, and it's so important, people get crazy. Um, uh, you take the, the whole subject of, in terms of salvation, man's free moral agency or his human responsibility in salvation, and then God's sovereignty and his predestination in, in salvation. The Bible teaches that both of them are true. But you get some people that they just, they cannot accept mystery with God. They've got to 
um, solve this mystery, reconcile what consider, they consider to be um, verses that are in conflict with one another, and they always have to reconcile it uh, to the harm of uh, some section of the Bible or some teachings of the Bible instead of just looking and saying, hey, I can't figure all of this out this side of heaven, but all I know is he says both of these things are true. There is a divine element in our salvation. There is a human responsibility element in our salvation. And he tells us all that we need to know about that. And maybe someday, if we care, He'll tell us the rest of it once we get into heaven. But once we get into heaven, who cares? Uh, We'll see anyway. But that's the way that it is with God. He conceals a matter because we can only track with him so far on anything that he wants to talk about. You ever talk with somebody like that and you just kind of bring up a subject and say, hey, well, what do you think about, you know, like three seconds in? It's like they're quoting this and quoting that and all of that. And you're thinking, man, I... All I ever read growing up was the comic books and Baby Huey and the Fantastic Four, and I got this guy. He's got me cornered now thinking I'm interested in it because I raised the question. My God, man, what he could tell us about anything. Now, on the, conversely, he tells us that a king is wise to realize that he does not possess uh, omniscience. He doesn't know everything. And as a result, he needs to fully investigate a matter or issues in order to make uh, good, well-informed decisions. And, of course, that's true of all of us, whether we're king or not. Is the heavens uh, for height and the earth for depth, so the heart of kings is unsearchable. And this, this proverb is kind of a... We would, it, it kind of communicates a saying that we would have that is, it's lonely at the top. It's lonely at the top. And, there, and it speaks about the fact that there is so much that goes on in the heart of the person who is the king or in the position of where the buck stops here. That's the position he or she has in life. And there's so much in the heart of the person that's in that position that they can never explain uh, to anyone else because nobody else can understand um, what it is that they're saying. It'd be, they'd think I could share this with them, but they couldn't bring any perspective because they don't understand the situation and they can't understand the situation. But the beautiful thing about it for people that are in those kind of positions, every dad is in those positions. In that position. Every husband is in that position. Every woman is in that position in some capacity or other in life. And in any situation that we're in in life, there is one that we can always go to, and that's the Lord himself who always understands anything we have to say with him. So I never start to pray to God and feel like I've got to inform him of the whole situation or get the feeling that he's taking notes. And he's like, slow down, slow down. <laughs> wait a second. Woo, you, wait too fast here and everything. Now, she said, what? And then you did, and then he, and then what? And the whole thing, he knows everything. I can just pick it up mid-sentence, whatever I'm in the middle of, and start to talk to him about it, and he's tracking with us. And that's a beautiful thing uh, about uh, the Lord. The... Uh, verse 5, take away dross from silver and it'll go to the silversmith for jewelry. You take dross away out of the silver, now you got something 
that you can make something valuable out of. Take away the wicked from before the king. Remove them from his presence, from being an influencer to him, and his throne will be established in righteousness. So the importance of, uh, well, a king as he removes uh, these fools or the wicked from being before him or as his counselors, then his reign, his throne will become more valuable than it otherwise would be in the same way that silver is more valuable when the dross is burnt off of it. And uh, so the importance of who we surround ourselves with, who we make our influencers in life, and to make sure that even though we're not a king, but each one of us is a king. We're the leaders in this world as Christians. We're the head. We're not the tail in this world. Nobody wags us. We don't follow. We lead in this world. And so the importance here of making sure that our lives are not influenced by wicked people uh, around us. Verse 6, do not exalt yourself in the presence of the king and do not stand in the place uh, of the great. For it is better that the king would say to you, come up here. And I was, what are you doing way down there, Kyle? Come on up here to the front seat. All right. Better to have that happen than that you should be uh, put lower in the presence of the prince whom your eyes have seen. So a warning against self-promotion, a warning against self-exaltation. Whenever we do that, we are asking to be publicly humbled and humiliated. And that goes on all of the time. And uh, good to steer clear of it. It happens a lot in Christian ministry, too, where people got this thing they want to get to and they got their own timeline for I'm going to become this and get into this position and all. And we advance ourselves and we promote ourselves to that place. And then we get there and we find out that we've done it and we haven't allowed God to build the character in our lives for us to be successful in that position. There's no recognition that of, on the part of anybody else that we're supposed to be there. And we get humbled. We get set back down to the lower table until um, we are, the Lord then uh, promotes us, as the Bible says, that he is the one that needs to do that. So Jesus, of course, took this proverb and gave that parable that he spoke when he was invited to uh, the feast by the religious leaders, and he noticed how all of them went to the, the seats toward the front and the most prominent seats, and he And he brought out the same truth of this. Don't elevate yourself or you're going to be publicly humiliated and sent to the lower seat. And he closed that teaching up by saying, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And so the best thing to do is to walk into a room or a ministry or a ministry situation and look around and say, what is the lowest seat? And take that seat and then let God uh, promote us. Do not go hastily to court for what will you do in the end when your neighbor has put you to shame. Debate your case with your neighbor and do not disclose the secret to another lest he who hears it expose your shame and your reputation be ruined. And so this is taking someone to court hastily before you have all of the facts and I'm going to sue this person or I'm going to falsely accuse this person. You don't have all of the facts. And so God says, listen, don't be doing that kind of a thing. Go to the person first before you go to anybody else there in 
in verse 9, go to your neighbor. It might not be what it appears to be. Have any of you been in a situation where you saw something come down, you were affected by it, and you say, this could only mean this, and it's an offense, and you're outraged and all of this, and somebody says, well, you know, it could be something else. No, there's no way. You work it out through your mind. It could only be this, and you begin to take steps in the wrong direction, and you're going to get them and pay, and they're going to do all this kind of thing, and then you find out, that it was exact opposite of what we thought was happening in our mind. There are a lot of um, explanations or reasons for that thing to have happened, and uh, not all of the reasons were sinister. And then you get publicly humbled as a result of it. But if you go to the person, you say, hey, this came down, and this happened, and I don't understand what's happening here, and... And could you tell this to me? And the neighbor says, yeah, it went like this. And then then all of a sudden you realize, wow, I'm so glad I didn't open my mouth, let alone sue them, uh, because it was nothing like what I thought it would be. So the importance of communicating to people, talking with people. Otherwise, we take them to court, we spew out all of our ideas of what happened, then our neighbor gets up and then lays out the simple facts of the situation that reveals that it was nothing like that at all, and then the person is uh, publicly humbled and their reputation is spoiled uh, as a result of it. And so talking to people, keeping things as small as possible, and uh, most things actually get solved on that level. It's only a, a, a relative, uh, mm, proportionately of a small number of things that have to escalate beyond that. Verse 11, a word fitly spoken. In other words, somebody says the right thing, just appropriate for the occasion. It's like apples of gold in settings of silver. Wow. Like an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold is a wise rebuker to an obedient ear. And so a word fitly spoken is a beautiful thing. It's a valuable thing. You go to a museum or you go into like a high-end gallery. I love to, when we're out someplace and they've got all of these galleries and different things to go into them. And the fun thing, we've talked about it before, but people don't know whether you're rich or not anymore. I mean, you've got people that are fabulously rich that dress as poorly as I do. So they can't take any risk. I may be a, a, a tech uh, billionaire or something. So they, they come in and ask me what painting I'd like to buy. Well, do you have any posters, like in the museum shop? <laughs> and, uh, but, uh, so here you, you go in and you see this beautiful work of art, this beautiful sculpture of gold apples in a setting of silver. I mean, you picture it in your mind, just beautiful. And... Uh, And just as a gold earring or a gold necklace or a piece of gold jewelry, it adds beauty, Solomon's saying to the wearer. Well, in the same way, a godly rebuke by a wise man is like a gold earring because if it's listened to, it makes our lives even more attractive and more valuable than they would otherwise be morally speaking. And so uh, the, the value of of heeding that kind of correction. Like the cold of snow in time of harvest. And so uh, you have, if you got a glass of ice water in those days, uh, during the harvest time, 
August, September, the hottest part of the year there in the Middle East, and they're bringing in, just like California, bringing in the crops, and somebody brings you a, a, a cold drink at harvest time. Wow, that's the greatest. And is it like a cold, the cold snow in time of harvest is a faithful messenger to those who send him, for he refreshes the soul of his masters. And so it talks about uh, of the fact that the person who is faithfully and accurately delivers his master's message, that's a great blessing to the person that uh, has sent him. So the importance of faithfulness in delivering a message, accuracy in delivering a message. You ever told somebody, hey, listen, here's, uh, you're going to be running into um, Aunt B and Opie, and here's what I want you to tell them. Or you give them a message, and they deliver the message, and then you find out the message that they delivered, and it was nothing like what you said. You say, well, I would never say anything like that. That was ridiculous. I meant the exact opposite of that. And you say, oh, man, I wish I'd have never entrusted that message to them. But somebody delivers it accurately, faithfully, and you go, wow, that's terrific. That's a that's a glass of ice water in August in the Middle East of a harvest 3,000 years ago. And, of course, the application is so important related to each of us as Christians because the Bible says we're ambassadors for Christ. And it's important to represent him, represent his word properly. Otherwise, And when it happens, it's a great blessing to God. And when it doesn't happen... Um, it's a great disappointment. And there's a lot of people saying a lot of things for God and in God's name that are nothing like what, his, uh, uh, what he's saying in his word. And so faithfulness and accuracy above all else because people are making eternal decisions based upon the message of God. So God says... God doesn't care if you shout the message or you're charismatic when you deliver the message or you're not terribly charismatic when you deliver the message. All he cares is about accuracy related to the message because then he has the message that he can add all the charisma to that he wants to in the person of the Holy Spirit. And I think that that's very good to uh, remember today. I think today ministry-wise, certainly in the role of a pastor today, there's so much pressure to be something other than accurate and to be faithful to deliver the message that you've got to be this, you know, this monster personality person that everybody likes and they draw and who knows what he's going to say next and what they're going to do. And I think that it uh, has the potential to scare off people who are truly called by God uh, to minister his word saying, wow, I, I don't have that wow factor, and so God must not have that call upon my life. No, he's, he's looking for someone to, de- to deliver the message accurately. Whoever falsely boasts of giving is like clouds and wind without rain. And so this speaks of the person who promises to do something for someone else, and then they don't do it. And... I think all of us have probably experienced that in life. What do you experience, especially when what they've promised to do gets you very, very excited, and then when they don't keep their promise, it's a tremendous disappointment uh, in our lives. And so this warning to the person who's just kind of like a big talker 
and a big promiser, and they don't realize the harm that they're doing. And it's likened to the disappointment that farmers feel when uh, rain is desperately needed. We know something about that, don't we, this year, the last three years actually. And the storms come in. They're just black as can be, loaded with rain. Looks like today's going to be the day that it rains. And then the clouds just keep on going. They don't drop a drop. And the, harm, the farmer's heart just sinks. Uh, some of us are old enough and lived in California. We remember the drought of the 1970s that ran for about four years there. Now, last year was a really tough year. I remember we, I wasn't even in farming. I was working for the phone company, and, and the clouds would come. Even to see clouds brought you outside to look at them, you know. Maybe we'll get some rain out of this. And they just passed over one after another after another and, uh, and uh, brought great disappointment. So we should never, ever promise the people what we know that we uh, cannot follow through on. And I would say never, ever, ever, especially never do that to a child, not purposely. And uh, we really need to move heaven and earth when we make a promise to a child uh, to keep that promise to them. They live with uh, such high expectations when a promise is given to them that this is their future, this is going to happen in two days, this is going to happen in a week, and their whole life revolves around it. And then how easily it is for an adult to just make a change in plan and not realize the impact that that can have on a child's heart. And sometimes that can't be avoided because life is what it is. But you explain to the child what happened and you set a new date. But hope and, ex- and excitement is a beautiful thing in a child's life. And a childhood is not a place to mar that uh, or to um, teach them deep disappointment. They got the rest of their life to deal with those kind of things. And, and, uh, and so to keep that alive, we don't want to ever be guilty of harming that kind of beautiful anticipation and hope and excitement in the heart of a child. Well, we'll stop there um, tonight. We'll pick it up in verse 15 uh, next week if the Lord tarries. And if he doesn't tarry, um, uh, then uh, well, we'll see you up there. It'll be great. <laughs> so there'll be some really good Bible studies up there because we'll be with the living Word of God. Let's stand together. If the worship team comes forward, that would be great as well. Well, do you feel any wiser today for having come out tonight? Lord, I'm talking to myself again um, um, with this congregation. And uh, so, well, I do, and I'm glad for it. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this wisdom. And any one of these Proverbs, they're so dense, they're so strong and, and so full that they can literally change a human life. Just one of them, Lord, and we've looked at dozens of them tonight. And we thank you for this wisdom. And we thank you that you are not only wise and you're not only smart, but you're willing to share your wisdom with us. And we pray that any of these nuggets that have hit close to home, either as an exhortation or an encouragement to us tonight, that you would keep those alive by your Holy Spirit in our hearts in this next week, and that you continue to develop our character, Lord, 
so that the world can look at our lives and realize that we really are being fashioned by a different wisdom and by a different someone that is, than the one that is fashioning the people of this world, Lord. And so thank you for the privilege of not only being able to live this life for the blessing that it is to us, but, Lord, we want our life to really count for bringing people to you. And so let your wisdom really shine forth from our lives in this coming week to your glory. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you